Good day, ladies and gentlemen. I'm here with Father Marcel Stannis. I almost said Joseph because your brother is also a priest, Father Joseph Stannis. And um, he is our prior here in New Hamburg, Ontario, for the surrounding area. And we're at Our Lady of Mount Carmel Academy, which is, is it the only traditional Catholic boarding school in Canada? That's correct. Because there's one in Quebec, but it's not boarding. Absolutely. So this right. is the only traditional Catholic boarding school in Canada. We're going to talk about the history of this school the history of Father Stannis's vocation, and more importantly, we're going to talk about Catholic education, what is good Catholic education, and how that differs significantly from the gruel they're probably giving your kids at the average Catholic school, sadly, and especially public school. So, Father, thank you for joining me. Kennedy, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. So, how did Father Stannis become a priest? That's a miracle in and of itself, I think, Kennedy, like any other grace that we receive from God. I had the fortune to grow up in a Catholic family and attending the Latin Mass my entire life. And it was just the natural course of things that led me to the seminary. I always, as far back as I can remember, had a longing for the priesthood. And of course, that idea matured uh, a lot as I grew up and had a more serious understanding of what the priesthood is, what the commitment is, and what the great grace of being able to communicate the life of God to souls actually means. So I think I only fully understood what I was getting into when I reached the seminary. But nonetheless, I think it was just the good education I received from my parents, the grace of God, the full experience of having the the Latin Mass and all the sacraments, the integrity of the faith growing up that led me naturally to the seminary. Now, were you homeschooled or did you go to a traditional school growing up? It's an embarrassing question, Kennedy, because uh, (laughs) here I am uh, trying to convince... What was your your blankie like when you were a child? (laughs) We're not going to get into that, but uh, I was homeschooled actually all the way through with a great homeschooling program, Our Lady of Victory School, based in uh, Idaho. And I did one year of boarding school myself as an exchange over to France, which was a great experience. But uh, other than that, was was homeschooled K K to 12. Okay. And there are... Three vocations in your family, correct? That's right. Yep. Yep. That's wonderful. Thanks be to God. Archbishop Lefebvre, there was five, I think, right, in his family? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. One day when he's canonized, which I always say in this podcast, they'll be doing an investigation to his parents like they did for Therese of Lisieux's parents, Mm -hmm. because to raise that many saintly children is just Well, his mother's uh, spiritual director actually wrote her biography, which you can think of most priests have better things to do than to write the biographies of their dirigés, but his... Uh, impression of her holiness was so profound that he decided he needed to set this down. And that's something that we have as well. In my um, SSPX book, I did a little portion on his parents, on Archbishop Lefebvre's parents. And um, this hasn't been proven or anything, but in one of the letters between her and her spiritual director, he's talking to her about her wounds that she feels. And the consensus is essentially she experienced some sort of spiritual stigmata for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. So she was a very, very holy woman. And the father, of course, died you know, fighting for the French resistance in the Second World War as an older man and just, um, yeah, pretty special family. So Archbishop Lefebvre, when he was um, a missionary especially, and he continued this with the Society of St. Pius X, the, the primary emphasis was always on schools. So when you read his biography by, by Bishop Tissier going into Africa, they're setting up schools first. Why is it so important that we set up good schools for the church and for vocations? Absolutely. Well, you're, you're, you're very right, Kennedy, that the church in general and Archbishop Lefebvre in particular have put a lot of emphasis on the education of the youth for just the very important reason that ultimately the early formation of childhood is absolutely fundamental in determining the path that a soul is going to follow in life. And so to neglect the, the early years or to see children growing up without a profound immersion in the Catholic faith for any missionary is the realization that this soul is going to be saved only really with the miracle of grace, whereas fidelity to uh, God's will, fidelity to the Catholic faith, fidelity to vocation, whatever it might be in the priesthood, in the religious life, or in the family, is ultimately normally the result of a serious Catholic education right from the very earliest years. I think it was the Jesuits that uh, said that, wasn't it? Give uh, give us your child for seven years, was yeah, it? Something like that, five or six years, yeah. And you can have him back afterwards and he'll be okay. 
Well, the communists say that too, but in reverse. <laughs> I think there's a, you know, it's one of these apocryphal quotes about Lenin or Stalin, but it was something to the effect of give me your child for six or seven years and mm-hmm. then they'll be mine for life. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I always say, you know, um, and we see this, we can, we can talk about this as we go, but we see this in the secular education world. The left understands the fullness of the truth perfectly. They just inverse it. Uh, so they believe in censorship. They don't believe in free speech because free speech is a myth. They just censor the wrong things. You know, they believe that every child must be raised with a creation story. They just give us Darwin's. You know, they believe that every child must be imbibed with uh, dogmas and taboos and mores. They just give us the wrong ones, you know. And this is why it's so frustrating uh, in education and in politics. The so-called conservatives will always advocate for things like free speech and all this kind of stuff. And they're just playing into their hands, whereas really you should be advocating for the truth and no lies. So... Given that context, how, what separates a very good Catholic education from the poor state of education that's so common for so many youths today? That's an excellent question, Kennedy, and one I'll try to try to answer. I think you just touched on a very important topic. First of all, the idea of filling the minds of children with garbage, for lack of a better term, is uh, right out of the socialist and communist playbook. For them, if we can distract children by telling them nonsense, telling them things that are useless, prevent them from learning real principle and truth when they're growing up, well, then the battle is already won because their mind is not properly ordered towards God, towards an understanding of the creation that comes from God, etc. And that's why the fundamental difference between a secular education, especially today, where the lines are more so much more clearly cut between what's good and Catholic and what is diabolical, is really just the emphasis on the truth. Mm-hmm. What is truth? Truth is the conforming of our mind to an exterior reality. And you know, try telling that to a socialist and watch the, watch the meltdown. Truth is whatever feels good. Truth is whatever works for you. Truth is whatever you want to believe. But don't dare talk about an objective truth, and don't you dare ever reference the ultimate truth is God, because as soon as you do that, well, you're setting a standard, a standard uh, for understanding the universe, a standard of moral action, and that's something that uh, directly uh, opposes what the what the world is offering. And so I think that's really the the measure of difference between Catholic education and secular education, which is really between real education and false education. Uh, you know, to look on this on the from the outside, I was thinking of of a good example. You know how Chesterton says, in order to see something objectively, you need to look at it as a stranger. Imagine a future uh, culture or uh, coming back and looking at our our culture in the current school system right now, and say, well, what are we doing here? What what what's going on? We're not teaching our children to actually be excited about the creation and the beauty of the universe around them. We're not teaching them to conform themselves to the vocation that they have and, and the God who created it all, but we're filling them with, with, with garbage and we're telling them things that are lies and we're distracting with, you know, social studies, trying to evaluate the entire world uh, and its value and as a history of democracy and mm-hmm. meaningless things that, that really don't give them any idea of who they are, why they're here, where they're going, how to get there, just the, the basics. And so I think that's where a Catholic education has all the answers. And children are, the younger they are, the more open they are to really hearing the truth and to, to learning that truth. And it makes them happy to, to conform themselves to real standards, to be able to, just to be able to write. Once again, imagine a future culture coming back. What did we learn? Well, we didn't learn to write. Look at what our, our, our children can't do after five, six, 12 years of, of high school, where's basic spelling? Where's grammar? Where's any appreciation of the great ideas that have, have been the inspiration for, for the greatest minds throughout history? It's, it's gone. And so that tells you that the, the modern system really is, is an attack. It's, it's an attack and a, almost a piracy of the institutions that should be communicating a love of truth and a standard of virtue to, to young people and instead giving them the direct opposite, which can only come from the father of lies and the father of father of sin. It's interesting you mentioned not being able to write. Um, you know, an uneducated man 1,500 years ago could probably recite, you know, passages of Homer, you know, uh, even though he couldn't read it, he could mm-hmm. still 
understand it and listen to it and memorize it. And today, I mean, our viewers probably will know who Homer was, not from The Simpsons, but the author. And uh, but they will have to look it up and they'll have to go and open it up. And, you know, it just shows that in our age, we're very, quote unquote, educated. Uh, but really, we just kind of are taught um, technical skills. We're not taught the telos, the goal, the end goal of what education is for. You know, I wrote this in my my first book, Terror of Demons. I told a story that some I'd read it from some nun. She related. It. She used to be a fiery anti-Catholic Protestant, and she decided finally, after reading the Church Fathers and so forth, that this Catholicism thing might be true. So she decided to go to a little parish church, and this was long before the council. And uh, so it hadn't been recovated and so forth, and it still had the traditional devotions and liturgy and so forth. And she went into this little parish church and she saw people were going in earlier. You know, she showed up like an hour before because she was so nervous. She was sitting in her car with this, with trying to get up the nerve to go inside the church. Mm-hmm. She was known for being this anti-Catholic uh, scholar. Mm-hmm. And she saw this person go in, that person. Then she saw a father and his daughter go in. And she went into the church and she saw the father kneeling and praying his rosary. And she saw the daughter walking around the church, uh, basically just sort of kissing and touching the icons. And, and, and she realized that this young lady, this 10-year-old, knew more about God from living the Catholic faith than she knew about God from her master's degree from whatever Bible college. And it just shows you that um, the primary goal of education must be to teach the eternal truths that everyone knows, but you know, men like Aquinas... They tell us what we already know and they make sure it's logically impenetrable, you know. So that being said, uh, given that this is a, a high school or a, an upper school, starts in grade seven, um, how do you guys, how do you ensure here that they get their right education? Sort of where would you start with new students? That's a good question. And little correction, we do have an elementary well, school, right. of course, of uh, K to six, that's boys and girls. But here in our current location, of course, it's uh, junior high and high school only. Uh, and very often we actually ask that parents who are sending their sons here from far away begin in grade nine at the latest, because we feel not to neglect what we said earlier about the importance of early formation. But as far as our high school formation goes, if we can have those boys for four years, and form their mind and their character for those four pivotal years of their adolescence that the school will be able to communicate the most of what it has to offer. And it's a good question of, of where to begin. There's obviously a, a lot that goes into the spirit of a, of a school. Everything obviously begins, as uh, we know, with, with the life of grace, with the liturgy. And it's a beautiful story that you were telling earlier, one that certainly Archbishop Lefebvre would agree with, that the liturgy is not just the highest prayer that we have, the Holy Mass and the the office of the church. Um, It's not only a summary of our Catholic faith, where we find not only the realities surrounding the nature of Mass and the real presence of our Lord, but of everything, of every aspect, the proper relationship of the creature to the creator, the proper uh, means of even practicing charity towards our fellow man, all of Catholic, the Catholic faith is summarized in the liturgy, but it's also, and Archbishop Lefebvre says this beautifully in the statutes of the society, the liturgy should also be our atmosphere of life. In other words, the attitude that we have towards God, towards creation, towards each other, is properly expressed in liturgy, and that should be the spirit, in fact, that influences our life, not only for us priests in our priories, but I would say also in our school. And I think that's something that speaks to boys as well. All the more so that boys have perhaps a, a greater sense of order, of, of discipline. They need a very structured environment to thrive in. And the liturgy is all of that. It really expresses that uh, very strict principle and order and and direction of, of life and of action so much that, you know, if you want boys to pay attention, especially when they're serving, you actually raise the bar. You, uh, you know, we're not going to settle for hands that are f- floppily folded or for movements that aren't perfect or for not knowing your, your responses. No, you, we're going to set the bar high. And that's where boys will step up to the plate because they know, well, okay, this is something serious. I can't do this half-heartedly. And I think that's, that's really where a Catholic education has to start is with the holy sacrifice of the mass and with a proper 
understanding of ultimately our, our, our final goal in, in all of this, which is heaven. There's an educational uh, commentator, and th- I don't know if you say theorist, but just an, a commentator. And I was listening to him a few years ago on a podcast, and he was on a Catholic podcast. And he was teaching in one of those charter schools down in the States and doing the best that he could to offer in that setting, a sort of a great books program, which is a very good program. And um, but he was asked, what would you tell Catholic parents right now who you know, don't know what to do? Maybe there's not a good Catholic school around. And they don't know how to homeschool, all these kinds of things. And he said, just take them out of the school, sit on the couch, and read them Lord of the Rings. <laughs> he said, take them out of the school, sit down and read them the Chronicles of Narnia. He said, they will learn more reading a good book at home with you and not being infected by all of the nonsense than they will if you send them to a $20,000 a year Jesuit school where they're getting a quote-unquote Catholic education. Mm-hmm. And I thought there was very profound wisdom because... You know, in parenting, you think about, you know, protecting your children. And of course, with spiritual fatherhood as a priest, you think about these same things. We can't always give our kids everything that we would like them to have ideally. But what we can do is we can stop them from being poisoned. Um, So coming to this environment, how do we ensure uh, also the lower school? Not only are they getting the right stuff, but they're not being infected with the wrong stuff. How do you go about that? I think that's an, an excellent point, Kennedy. And I think you're right that it's not simply a, a degree of excellence as far as education goes of, say, public schools, regular Catholic schools, and then uh, homeschooling or a truly traditional Catholic school like like our own school here. Uh, but it's really one is the direct opposite of the other. So in, in one case, we're communicating lies, confusion, immorality, perversion even these days very openly to to children. And so any parent, I would say, has a grave duty in the eyes of God to prevent his children from living in that atmosphere. Uh, And on the other, while we're, as we say, trying to cultivate not only the life of the soul in the sense of just forming the intellect and and, and will to know the truth and love what's good, but ultimately to to pursue the ultimate good, which is union with God. Um, so how do we, we go about that? I think you're absolutely right that uh, education can, in some minds, be a little bit overcomplicated. Uh, it's a bit like parenting, if you will. You know, if you simply looked at, sat down with a textbook or with a professor of a university and, okay, what are all the things that we've got to get right? You know, you could, any parent would quickly be, or future parent would quickly be overwhelmed. How can we possibly avoid all the mistakes that are there to be made and uh, check all the boxes? Whereas uh, you're a parent, I'm not. But you know that, in fact, well, God gives us the natural ability to speak to our children and to educate them. So we have, by our very uh, grace of state and the qualities that, that God has given us as part of our, our human nature and as well the, the microcosm of society that the family is, we have, in fact, the, the tools to provide a basic education of our children. I'm not sure if you saw that horrendous... Uh, clip from Parliament the other day where an MP was was being asked about, I guess, some of the laws that are being passed to protect children in Western Canada. And he actually got up and said what I guess many people in government actually think, is he said, parents don't actually have any rights. Yes. Uh, children have rights, <laughs> but parents have responsibilities, but no rights. And I thought, wow, if this man you know, could only wake up to reality, the church has always taught that rights and responsibilities go together. And so parents have the responsibility to provide for their children, and therefore they have a right to make those decisions but they also have a, a grace and ability to educate their children. And that's something as well, which Pius XI says does fall on Catholic schools, that the church being in charge of, of saving souls has a right to run schools, has a right to provide a, a Catholic education free from the uh, subjection to, to the state in, in all things, because the goal of the church is, is a superior one. Not that church and state have to be independent. We, I think we're in, in an understanding and agreement there as, you know, the indirect subordination of one to the other because the church has the, has the higher goal. But uh, I think that, once again, the Catholic Church does have the means necessary to educate children, not only in religious matters, but also to provide them a proper formation of, of mind and heart. Once again, just knowing that ultimately what the product of education is, as Pius XI very properly says, is the young man or the young woman of character who can think, who can judge, and who can act constantly and consistently according to right reason and to God's law. And so that being the case, well, as adults, we know 
what uh, the moral law is. We know what the principles that direct our life are. We know what the means of grace are. And if we're parents, if we're educators, we can communicate that, obviously, at the age-appropriate level to to children. And once again, that that makes them happy. It helps them thrive when they know the truth, when they know their place in God's creation, when they have, and children are always so, so curious to learn, and God made them that way because they soak in everything around them. When we're placing them in a just a good environment where God uh, is is recognized, where the Holy Mass is is uh, attended, where uh, prayers are said, and where the truth is is taught in all simplicity, children thrive and they're they're happy, they're fulfilled, they're uh, growing up with with everything that they need to really uh, become happy and purposeful and self sacrificing young men and women, which is a beautiful thing to see. Do you know who Rex Murphy is, the Canadian journalist? Yes. He's the last of the Mohicans. He's probably the, <laughs> as far as Canadian journalists goes, any of the viewers, if you don't know who he is, look up his work. It's wonderful. Um, he is Catholic. He's from Newfoundland. I don't know if he's practicing anymore, but he does, he was on a podcast with Jordan Peterson and it was sort of a life story of Rex Murphy. Mm-hmm. And he was heralding as such a wonderful thing, his early education with the nuns. You know, he's in his mid-70s now, so he would have had a a traditional education long ago. And he said he realized later in life that when they were teaching him the catechism, they were actually teaching him philosophy. They were teaching him premise, argument, conclusion. They were teaching him how to think. And Rex Murphy, his uh, university education was in, uh, there there used to be a very strong English education in, in, uh, in Newfoundland at the university out there. I, I, is it called Mount St. What is it called? Mount, Mount University or something like that. It's the big uh, university out there. And he doesn't have a degree in political science or, you know, um, economics or things like that. But the, one of the reasons why he's such an astute political and social commentator is because he's read the great Western canon. Mm-hmm. So he had that education as a, as a Catholic, as a young boy. And then he read the great works of history. So he knows how to think. So he looks at the economy. He says, I don't need a Excel spreadsheet. I just know that's stupid mm-hmm. <laughs> because that doesn't accord with human nature. You know, I don't need to have, you know, an ins and outs of the policies of what's going on in parliament. I know this law is a bad law because I know how human beings are because I've read Plato. I've read Aristotle. I've read Homer. I've read Dante, et cetera. So I know at this school and in general in the society, St. John Bosco is a big inspiration for Catholic education. Um, could you speak to us about the sort of Bosco model and why that's so important? Absolutely. Um, many Catholic schools model themselves or claim to model themselves on St. John Bosco, and for good reason. He almost is second to none in just the work the, uh, that he did to start and spread a system of Catholic education around the world, both for boys and for girls all beginning, of course, with the first oratory in Turin and which spread with the Salesian order around the world to, to the four corners of the earth. And what the St. John Bosco method is, if you can sum it up really in, in three words, is religion, reason, and kindness. What does that mean? Um, I believe it means that, first of all, our Catholic faith should inspire every aspect of the atmosphere in the school, of the subjects that are taught, of the ultimate goal of, of what we learn. And of course, that makes perfect sense. If, once again, we're creatures made in the image and likeness of God, made for heaven, well, there should be an order and a focus and a goal to, to all that we learn, which ultimately has to have as its end union with God through 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 holiness. Um, but that also, I think, is, is very important. It's something that we try to live here at the school by just ensuring that our teachers really embrace our same Catholic principles, the same goals and the same understanding of whatever branch of of learning it is that they teach so that they can both communicate that within their classes and also be examples that our students can look up to of how to live as a Catholic in a completely crazy and a completely atheist world. And I think that our school would not be what it is if it didn't have Catholic teachers with sharing those principles and being that that kind of example. It's I think we we too readily distinguish between textbook learning and the ideal or example that we're setting forth to children, it's, it's really all one. And so that's, I think, the importance of that first principle, the full first pillar of 
of St. John Bosco's method is really having our entire atmosphere as far as we can control it. And here at uh, our school, we can control everything because thanks be to God, we're completely uh, strings free with regards to government over, uh, overreach or, uh, you know, determination of, of what can or can't be taught at the school. We're free to, to teach what we want, how we want, et cetera. And so that we try to make sure that it's the Catholic faith ultimately that inspires our direction and inspires each, each subject and keeps it in its place with regards to, to, uh, to how it's taught and why it's taught. Secondly, of course, uh, reason. Reason just means that one of the most important things we can do is to teach our children to think. You know how it is that the accusations against the Catholic Church are always, in fact, what the enemies of the Church are doing and want to blame on others. So, you know, with this whole uh, residential school crisis that yes. uh, came up over the past few years, it's in fact the government just trying to get even with the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church has always been the institution that stood up to protect uh, everyone and to protect the natives in Canada yes. from just being misused, mistreated, and very unjustly unjustly treated by the government of Canada. And the Catholic Church, Father Lacombe, if you look at his story, would actually camp out in the parliament buildings, insisting with the prime ministers and the ministers who are there, look, you have to stop this. You're you're taking advantage of these people and, and yeah. lying to them and being dishonest with them. This has to stop. And as a result, while well, the government at the time and, and now currently, of course, got its revenge as it, as it could, and never more so than in the public defamation which the catholic church has has endured so it's really the same i think with reason the enemies of the church try to claim the catholic church is all about dogma but you can't question anything you can't uh, learn to think independent thought all these are are forbidden and in a catholic school you'll be brainwashed into <laughs> accepting what we've inherited from the dark ages you know the you know the the, the theories there whereas in reality nobody and no institution has ever been more ready to actually look at the objections to the Catholic faith than the Catholic Church herself. And St. Thomas Aquinas in his Summa Theologica, or Summa, Summa Theologiae, uh, looks at more objections than anyone else and the best objections, the hardest objections. He starts with, does God exist or not? Exactly. He's questioning <laughs> the very point of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And not questioning it in a in a sort of uh, uh, skeptic frame of mind, but question it to say, well, does the truth actually stand up to the objections and illuminate the 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 real difficulties which 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 are to be found? And so I think it's the same for our young people today. We in order to be a match for the modern world, we have to be able to think. We have to be able to see through the lies, through the false ideas, the false marketing, mm-hmm. and the fallacies that are thrown at us on from every direction. And to do that, we have to be able to overcome a simply a gut reaction to words that are thrown at us, you know, which are which are all code words which we're we're sort of conditioned to react to, like the Inquisition, like uh, uh, you know, some of the Crusades, like so many other uh, distortions of history that are thrown at the Catholic Church without rhyme or reason, without any depth of thought, and and I think that that's that's very important and a very important part of, of educating today because we can only protect our children from so much in the world. Sooner or later, they will grow up and they'll need to tackle these things, not so much on their own in the sense of without any external assistance, but they'll be able to have that, that strength of mind and of thought to resist the lies that are, that are out there. And I think that's why reason is so important. And it's also, it makes obedience much easier, especially for adolescents when they realize that they're not simply being told what to do or not being given a code of conduct for the sake of a code of conduct or for the sake of having rules, but rather that uh, obedience is in fact a rational thing that anytime there's a human society, there will be someone in charge, there will be rules laid down for the common good. And that helps them as well conform to the good of their own soul uh, by taking their their place and practicing obedience within the family or within the school setting as well. So that's, I think, what St. John Bosco realized perhaps better than anyone and inculcated into his system of education. So religion, reason, and then lastly, kindness. St. John Bosco is the one who coined the famous phrase, uh, education is principally a matter of the heart. Hmm. And it's impressive to read his life. If you have the chance, Kennedy, I'm not sure if you've had uh, the opportunity yet, but St. John Bosco, the giant of charity. There are so many stories of of St. John Bosco in so many books. This one written by Father Ofre really portrays the incredible charity of this saint who would do anything we're reading it with our grade 11 and 12 students in class right now. And 
I was particularly touched by the story of St. John Bosco, who was out just walking the streets of Turin. I think it was towards the beginning of the whole oratory and, and the work of education that he was starting for boys. And these four guys came up to him, young teenagers. They were looking for an excuse to start a fight, pickpocket him, and run. And so they came up to him with a completely unreasonable request. You know, John Bosco, we're having an argument. You need to decide which one of us is right. <laughs> no further evidence given. And St. John Bosco not only saw that he was in a bit of a trap in a tough way because he was in a, a sort of a shady part of town and no help wasn't around. He was a strong man, but, you know, might not be able to, to overpower these four, uh, four young lads. But also realized these four guys are losing their souls. They're out here, you know, effectively robbing strangers and they're going to lose their souls. So as a, not only a clever way of getting out of a tight situation, he said, well, let's, let's head over to a, to a coffee shop and, and we'll sit down for a coffee. And, uh, you know, the youngsters are, well, do we trust you or not? Who's going to pay? Oh, I'll pay. I'm, I'm going to pay. My word is given. You're all witness. I'm paying for you. Let's, let's go. So, of course, being Italians, they can't resist. A good they can't say no to espresso, yeah. <laughs> or espresso. So they, they head off and, of course, pass by a church. And St. John Bosco says, okay, let's head and just say a, a little prayer here. You know, we'll say a Hail Mary. And the four of them are like, oh, we know you, priest. You know, it's going to start with the Hail Mary. It's going to end with the 15 decades of the rosary. St. John Bosco says, no, just a, just a little prayer. So they head and say a Hail Mary and a and a glory be, head over, have a coffee. And of course, before you know it, he's got their life story of each one of them. As so many boys in Turin were at the time, it was, uh, you know, loss of parents or poverty or coming to, to work, trying to find a job, not succeeding and falling to crime as a result. And before the day was over, of course, three of the four had made a good confession, promised to come back to the oratory and were, you know, back on the straight and narrow to a certain extent. And that's, I think, what, what St. John Bosco really identified is that in order to today more than ever, where there's not only chaos on a grand scale in the world around us, but also a, a real, a real uh, capitulation or uh, neglect on behalf of the authorities that should be looking after us on all levels, in the church, in society, in families as well, that in order to educate, we can't simply rely as educators or as priests or even as parents on authority alone. But we have to portray what's good and what's true and what's beautiful. We have to portray that as an ideal that's worth striving for, that's worth sacrificing for, and by ourselves being examples really of, of the love of God for children who have almost nothing to look up to, nothing to look forward to in a, in a, in a, in a very bleak society that we live in today. And I think that's something that stands even more true today than it did at the time of, time of St. John Bosco. Mm that uh, children need to experience that kindness, our rightly ordered kindness, obviously, not the creepy affection that we're seeing from uh, educators in, in the public school setting or elsewhere, but a real properly ordered love of souls, love of God, and a willingness to sacrifice ourselves, sacrifice our time, sacrifice our otherwise obtainable comfort for the good of, of, of these souls confided to our care. And I think that those three pillars have stood the test of time and have showed themselves to be the real uh, fundamentals of a, of a true Catholic education, which is effective today as it was in the time of St. John Bosco. It's interesting you speak of obedience because when the lockdown started, I don't know if people are aware, it's called COVID, but I prefer the traditional spelling, it's communism. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, really the only people who remain sane within the church, within the Catholic church, Generally speaking, it was mainly traditional Catholics, at least in our area. I'm sure there's other areas where it's a little bit different, but really it was devout, at least traditionally minded Catholics. And I've thought about this a lot and I thought to myself, why is that? I mean, why was it that in general, the bishops of the world, you know, started sounding like a public health official? Why was it, you know, all the things we all know? Mm -hmm. And why was it the traditional Catholics who you know, may or may not have found places to go to mass in a barn and things like that. Why was it that we did that? Well, because we understand true obedience. We understand that obedience is only a virtue if it's virtuous. Uh, you can't say, you know, I'm going to obey my superior when he's asking you to do something, not just explicitly sin, but not to do something, you know, you ought to do. You know, this is why, you know, people know by political philosophy, the government, I think, if it's more than three or four people, it might be too big. You know, I, I don't want that many people telling me what to do. <laughs> and, um, but the reason is, is because um, we have to be able to take care of the fundamental things in our life as best as we possibly can without the interference 
of those who don't have our best interests at heart. So when a, when a, a law comes down that says you have to close your business, you say to yourself, well, hold on a second. I have to provide for my family. So Thomas Aquinas talks about this and others, but you know, we're not disobeying the government Well, in an indirect sense we are, but we're actually obeying the principle above the person who's abusing the principle. Mm-hmm. How do we inculcate in young men, especially because there is, you know, there's a danger in the independent spirit because it can become revolutionary, but there's also a danger in, let's call it uh, a subservient docility um, that is sort of unquestioning and blind because then, I mean, this is basically what happened after the council. Archbishop Lefebvre talks about this in his works, but especially in I accuse the council, you know, he's talking about how the majority of the fathers at Vatican II, they were not liberals. He said probably 10% of them were so, were hardcore liberals. 10% of them were, you know, quote unquote traditionalists. And about 80% were sort of just very moderate. But there had been this misunderstanding of obedience and authority that had sort of become, obedience was confused with power, which are not the same thing. You know, Justin Trudeau has lots of power, but in many ways he's illegitimate in what he does. And therefore I'm not going to do everything he tells me because it goes against my reason. Mm -hmm. So how do we inculcate the true sense of, let's call it, a uh, uh, a rightly ordered understanding of independent thought, but at the same time being obedient. How do we do that in in, in young men, especially who are so eager to rebel and things like that? That's a, a very big question, Kennedy. And one of two minutes to answer. No. <laughs> try to say a few words about it's uh, it's interesting. It's an interesting question. It's one that uh, I think every educator does have to come up against because you're right that a proper understanding of obedience is extremely difficult in a world where authority is misused and as a result, misunderstood. And it's something that's all the more challenging, as you say, with, with adolescent boys, because they naturally are sort of pushing boundaries. They want to find, okay, is there really a structure that I can rely on here? Is there anything that's, that's certain and solid as, you know, I'm changing and growing up and becoming part of the adult world, et cetera. And obedience is a tough thing at any age, but maybe especially in the adolescent age, because there's a longing for within our human nature, and that's affected by original sin, for complete independence, right? And ultimately, complete independence isn't really possible. It's the non-servium of of Lucifer. We can't throw off all authority. At the same time, educators today are up against a real, real difficulty that there's so much confusion about the real role of authority and something that that bothers me a lot as well, is there a lack of real role models of a proper use of authority. If you look at examples of people that you want young men to look up to today as leaders of, of any kind, whether it be within the church, whether it be within the political sphere, whether it be within society at large, where do you turn to today? Where do you find men being real men in the sense of being able to sacrifice themselves for the good of something bigger, of an ideal, of a... Of a, of a goal, of, of something honorable, who in other respects actually practice real real virtue and so can be a, a set the path to follow for, for young men. And the answers are, are, are few and far between, the, the, the real models that are there. And I think that has the effect of making our, our young men uh, and even making us to a certain extent cynical. Right? And it's not a good thing to be cynical. It's not a good thing to find the flaw in, in every model, every ideal, every every good that's proposed because that, <laughs> as we all know, just makes us sad and it makes us give up striving to become better ourselves or striving to do good in our families or in society or in the world or in the church. And that's something that I think as an inevitable result of the world that we live in is creeping in. So how to teach independence of thought and how to teach real authority at the same time. It's tough. Certainly the world is turning everything upside down. All you need to know uh, or to, to see is, you know, how every Hollywood movie, whenever there's a family scene that's por- portrayed, it's the mom and dad are fighting with each other and it's the reasonable, rational kids that need to uh, stand up and, and wade in and tell, okay, mom and dad, stop fighting, you know, just get organized and start agreeing and uh, everything will work out. You know, that's obviously the opposite of reality. It's it's the parents that uh, provide that that structure and order for their for their families, and that's the the right order. I think the answer really is is by being and and uh, living up to the high standard that authority really requires uh, ourselves. 
right? It's uh, how is authority properly exercised? It's properly exercised by being not so much a power to tell others what to do with no, with no commitment on our own part, but rather it's the sense that, well, God gave me the responsibility for your soul if I have an authority over you, and therefore I'm going to direct you towards what's good for you, and I have the, the power to do so that comes from God, but at the same time, I need to also make that the ful- fulfillment of that uh, of that obedience something that's possible and doable for you as a child or as a subject. And that's what I think the Holy Scripture says: is fathers provoke not your children to anger. Don't be unreasonable. Don't be overly harsh. Don't be you know un- inflexible with, with with your children because that will provoke them to anger and therefore to, to disobedience. But rather, be yourselves models of obedience to the legitimate authorities that are over you. And use your authority as uh, a responsibility for leading souls to what's good. I think it's St. Thomas speaks about that in the Summa where he treats on divine government. He says that uh, God governs us in the same way of leading us towards our ultimate good while, of course, leaving to us the what's conformed to our nature, our, our freedom to, to act and to decide to a certain extent. And so I think human authorities need to do the same thing of cultivating the good, presenting the ideal, encouraging those under their care to, to pursue that, but without becoming unreasonable or, or micromanaging. And I think as well, we teach our children independence of thought by in fact, making them responsible for certain areas of, of their own lives. And that's something that we try to communicate at their school. The older a boy gets, the more responsibility he has within the school to the point where our grade 12s are prefects, as we call them. Uh, who run a lot of the day-to-day things in the school. They're overseeing the teams. They're deciding you know, who gets the, the weekly prize for, for diligence and duty and good behavior and exemplary attitude and things like that. And that sharing of an important responsibility in the school helps them grow up and realize that, well, hey, you know, being at the top isn't just a privilege of getting the perks and getting other people to shine my shoes for me. This is actually a direct contribution to the common good and one where, as a man, I can find fulfillment and happiness in using this authority to communicate good to others. There's a priest, Father Maudsley. He's a traditional priest, and he's written a lot of great books recently. I've had him on my show before, and he has a twin brother who is in the British military, right? A career in the British military. And he was doing a talk one time I was at, and he was talking about this crisis of false obedience in the church. And he said, it's interesting. He was talking to his brother and he said in his training for whatever unit he was in in the military, very high level stuff. He said, they actually tested us without telling us. And they would put us in a scenario where we were under obedience and we didn't know it was a trick. And they would evaluate us on whether or not we had the will and the uh, gumption to say no to an unjust order. And we would be marked poorly if we had said yes and said it was because of obedience. And he said, something like that has to be inculcated into people to understand. And you can only do that if you understand through a right reason. You can only do that if you understand the highest principles. And one of the things I think that is so important about a school like this is you mentioned how the boys are kind of in a pecking order. As much as men, we kind of reject Uh, the idea that someone's going to tell me what to do. At the same time, we thrive when a man we respect tells us what to do because we believe when we're doing what they're asking of us that we're actually participating in their excellence. Can you speak to the importance of, it's a school, it's boys, nothing's perfect. There's going to be personalities that don't get along. Boys are going to be bullies. And you know this is just what men do. But I think it's so important for young men, especially in our day, and Archbishop Lefebvre have talked about this. He said one of the great crosses that parents will have to bear during the crisis is they can't send their kids to their little parochial school anymore where they got to get education. They're going to have to separate from them and send them away somewhere where they're going to miss them. It's going to be hard. There's going to be trials. But they're going to be come out on the other side as good men. Can you speak to the importance of parents, in a sense, kind of letting go a little bit at that transitionary age and putting them in a scenario like this where they will come up against obstacles, but they're going to learn how to navigate those in the right environment. Can you speak to that? Absolutely. That's definitely one of the more difficult aspects of boarding school for for parents is 
sending their sons away, whom they truly love, obviously, to receive an education sometimes hundreds or thousands of kilometers away and not knowing exactly what the environment's going to be like or knowing that there are going to be difficulties of the kind that you mentioned. I guess, once again, the perspective is, well, what do we want out of this education? What do we want for our sons as they grow up and become men? And what every good parent wants is a man who is able to be a real man, a virtuous man, a Catholic man, uh, obviously a, a faithful man as well. And how is that going to come about? I think some parents think if I can only protect my children long enough from the spirit of the world and uh, ensure that they're not corrupted by the lies and the perversion and the evil that's, that's in the atmosphere around us, then at 18, 19, or 20 years old, my son will be able to integrate into the, the world around and do so without falling prey to the, to the traps that are there. I think that the, the real answer is not protection from everything in the world around, and especially from the, the ideas that are there, but rather learning to, to navigate real difficulty and integrate into real society as well with guidance, with a certain amount of protection, but especially with guidance and with the, the role models that I mentioned earlier. And I think that's the strength of, of a boarding school, especially for boys, is giving Yes, truly an environment where in, there are influences that, are, uh, that come from everywhere. Ultimately, a, a school will be influenced by everyone who's here, teachers, priests, boys, adult house fathers, everyone contributes something to that. And some of the influences might not always be for the best. But nonetheless, to be a strong man today, you have to be able to stand up for the truth. It uh, doesn't matter where the, where the contradiction is coming from. You have to be able to persevere in doing good, whether the difficulty is you know, getting my homework done in a short period of time, whether it means, uh, you know, surviving distractions in my study hall from students that aren't motivated or taking some flack for maybe the devotions that I have or the, the attitude that I have, which might even be seen by other Catholics flawed by original sin as overly pious or overly, uh, overly devout. And once again, a school being a school and therefore dealing with souls affected by original sin is not going to always be a Benedictine monastery. <laughs> it rarely is, just because of, uh, once again, the, the reality that we're facing. But nonetheless, I think it's a, nonetheless a good school in that educational perfection is progress. If we're moving away from the spirit of the world, the influence of original sin towards a Catholic faith that's really loved and embraced and towards manly virtue, which is, uh, self-sacrifice for the common good, being able to provide and protect for those under my my care by being a, a virtuous man, then in fact, our school is a good one. And I think that the difficulties that do arise of boys misbehaving or mistreating another one another, or sometimes even of criticizing another wrongfully, those none of those things are are good. But what we want are men who are able to take some flack and still keep persevering on. And I think that if our boys learn that through some of the rough and tumble that, that may happen within a boarding school, then they come out stronger. They come out with a much more personal conviction of their faith, a much better understanding of why virtue and real manhood is the only way to, to live a good life and to actually find fulfillment as men. And they also come out the stronger for, in spite of perhaps with all of that rough and tumble as well, forming profound and strong Catholic friendships, which will last a lifetime and which will be a big help towards, uh, once again, the living a good life and, and uh, fulfillment because what's life without, without real friends? Well, it's funny you mentioned the rough and tumble making friendships. Um, you're aware of Muhammad Ali and George Foreman, two famous heavyweight boxers. Mm -hmm. And George Foreman had his loss to Muhammad Ali, the rumble in the jungle, it was a famous thing, et cetera, rope-a-dope and all that. Mm -hmm. And George Foreman and Muhammad Ali became best friends. And, you know, he literally beat him up and humiliated him on the, on the world stage. And, and George Foreman had to do some soul searching and, you know, um, really had to figure out what was important to him. And they spoke on the phone almost every single day for the rest of Muhammad Ali's life. Hmm. And uh, he just, it's weird. Men are weird that way. We can literally get in a fist fight and then after that become really good friends. And this is very important because when young men go into the work world, 
or they go off to college or something, they're going to encounter bullies. They're just going to be called their boss or whatever. They're going to encounter people who are slandering them and so on and so forth. And we're not saying that that happens as a rule in a, in a school, but we're saying if that is going to happen, you do want to encounter that in an environment where you have the sacraments. Mm-hmm. Because every 16-year-old boy is going to sin. It's better that he sins in a place where he can go to confession in the morning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, every young man is going to have questions where he's going to, you know, maybe rebel in his reason against the faith or something like that. So you want to have him in, a, have him in an environment where he's going to get the answers that he needs. And uh, yeah, you said it perfectly. So I thought we could close here. And one of the aspects at this school uh, is sports. And the sporting culture, and I grew up playing football and rugby, and I love sports, and I coach, and it's wonderful. But they can be an idol. You know, I watched the Super Bowl the other day. I paused it during every commercial. Didn't watch the stupid halftime show. But I was watching the Super Bowl, and I was looking at, and I understand a little bit about audio video now. This is very small potatoes <laughs> compared impressed. to- the, I'm impressed, I'm impressed, Kennedy. It's very small potato compared to the, uh, the Super Bowl. But I remember, I know a little bit about these things, and I thought, my goodness, just to get that shot- of that flame, this flame of football, whatever they lit for the symbol of excellence or something at the beginning of the game, just the cameras, like that four seconds was a $20,000 thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's an idol. You know, I mean, I thought to myself, my goodness, they're in Las Vegas of all cities playing this game. And I love the sport, but the stuff around it is just insane. And I thought, my goodness, all this effort goes into something that is nice, but it's not going to save your soul. What a shame this effort is not going into the things that are eternal. And this is a constant struggle and and whatever. But nonetheless, sports are very important for young men. Can you speak to the importance of that competitive sporting atmosphere as part of a good education? That's a good question, Kennedy. I agree that sports sometimes are made the be all and end all for uh, young men. Perhaps not, uh, not, not rightly so, or not in a perfectly uh, adequate perspective. I think the things, the good things that sport has to offer, are a real mental discipline, and um, physical discipline is good. Being able to cultivate bodily strength, ability, all those are good things. But ultimately, the virtue of fortitude is not just a physical matter. As we know, yeah. it's possibly to be a, a world-class athlete, but, uh, you know, a scoundrel, a scoundrel, yeah. or, uh, take my smartphone away and, uh, you know, they'll be bawling in tears. Yeah. Give me my, uh, give me my social media back, et cetera, or who, 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 or what am I? So I think the, the, the most important aspect of, or one of the most important aspects of, of sports is that, uh, mental discipline of being able to push yourself and sacrifice yourself for something bigger, something greater, and to do so even in the face of difficulty. You know, our our little school here will participate, say, in the District 8 League. We're a drop in the bucket compared to many of the schools that we play that are high schools of two to 3,000 students. That's the pool they're selecting from for their volleyball or basketball team. You know, we have maybe 35, 40 students to pick from in that same uh, age range, et cetera. So you could say, oh, what's the point? There's little hope of bringing home the the gold medal at the end of the season, et cetera. And I'd say the point is, is there every bit as much to show that, well, we are men not because we're going to, uh, because we're going to win the World Cup. We're not. We're men not because we're going to necessarily uh, defeat every every um, obstacle that we encounter in life. We're men because we're ready to to sacrifice ourselves and even lay down our lives if needs be for the principles and the truths that are eternal. Mm-hmm. And that lesson can be very strongly conveyed in young minds, the minds of young men, by recognizing that in, in sports, so you're part of you're part of a team, you're sacrificing yourself for, for the good, and it doesn't matter per se who walks away with the trophy at the end so much as did I do my part in order to, to lead my team as best I could? Did I do my part to contribute to the good that was here, uh, that was to be obtained? And that good, I think, really is the spirit of sacrifice and a mental fortitude of being able to face difficulty, face challenge, face even loss. And that nobody enjoys losing uh, a game. It's humiliating. It is, yeah. but still in the pursuit of an ideal. And that's why I think it's it's a good thing that we that we do engage in these in these sports, and that boys learn to tackle difficult obstacles and hit up against even uh, even defeat. While it teaches that that mental stamina of pick yourself up and keep going. Don't become so self centered and self-focused that the be all end all is, you know, getting the spotlight, getting the trophy, et cetera. That's something the world is promoting everywhere is it's all about you. 
stare at yourself in the mirror every day, look at yourself, question yourself, examine yourself, impose yourself and your idea of yourself in the world. Whereas almost more than ever, we need to be telling our young people and our our children, forget about yourself. Yeah. <laughs> what can you contribute to towards others? What can, what's the ideal that you can strive for? Strive for what can you become? What is the, what are the graces and the gifts and the talents that God has given you that He's going to ask back from you as you become a man and and go from this this the scenario of receiving within a school to contributing back to society? There's not going to be a gold medal for being a dad and uh, you know <laughs> rocking your child to sleep at three o'clock in the morning. Nobody's going to give you the golden husband award for taking the trash out for your wife when needs be, or for sacrificing yourself in so many ways. That's something that you, any education needs to communicate early on of there's a common good to be achieved. Every man has a part to play in achieving that common good in the society that we live in, in the world that we live in, in the church today. And I think sports have a, an important element in that, in teaching that mental stamina, strength, real fortitude to keep striving for a difficult goal in the spite of whatever challenges lie in our paths. Well, it's funny you mentioned middle of the night. Last night, we just moved uh, Clementine, my, you know, Clementine. Mm-hmm. Um, you baptized her, actually. But, uh, you know, she's a year and a half old, and she's now Beautiful moved. girl. Yeah, she is. Now she's moved into a um, room with Clover, my my older daughter. And uh, I think Clementine thought it was a party time last night at about 1230. <laughs> I could hear, I was finishing up some work. I work usually late into the night, and I could hear I thought, is the dog outside doing something silly? No, it's my daughter upstairs. And I go in and she was just trying to pull down the curtains and <laughs> pick up a little dresser thing beside her and just laughing and having a blast. And Clover was just sawing logs, didn't even notice. <laughs> but yes, I had to get her back to sleep and it's a it's a regular occurrence. Okay. Well, this school is run by the charity, the goodness of people's donations and the tuitions and things. And as a true Catholic school, um, There was always an effort made to make sure that nobody who has a difficulty paying for it can't attend in a true Catholic spirit. And the teachers here make great sacrifices. Um, This is an old public school that was purchased. Every summer we have Operation Phoenix, uh, the significance being we're going to help this place rise from the ashes. And we come here, the men, I mean, there was a, at the lower academy, I knocked down one of those walls for you this summer. Mm -hmm. I'm not very handy, but if you give me a sledgehammer, (laughs) I can figure out something to do. And uh, so we, we all in this, in this community, we all put in our efforts and the teachers, as I said, and the priests make great sacrifices to do very, to do very much with very little. Um, so how can the viewers support even first, if they can send their kids here and we've had students from Mexico, we've had students from the United States, of course, and all over Canada, mm-hmm. even around uh, the world as well. Around yep. the world. Mm-hmm. And we have students from Asia here now. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, everyone is welcome to come here as a young man who wants a good Catholic education that can be worked out. Um, but even if they can't send their kids, is there a way that they can help financially support this place? Absolutely. Well, the most important support that we can get, Kennedy, really is the prayer of, course. of uh, all Catholics offered up for, for this important mission and for our school in particular. I think the existence of any Catholic school today is a little miracle because we all know the forces that are at play, which are, like St. Paul says, principalities and powers. That Satan is certainly doing everything he can to destroy the innocence and the souls of the young. And so that's why I think Catholic education is so much under attack. And so it is a spiritual battle, and we need to fight back on the spiritual level of praying, offering our rosaries, offering our sacrifices for the survival of our good Catholic schools. Um, as well, um, of course, we're very grateful for our generous benefactors who contribute to the upkeep of the school, paying the bills at a Private school is a bit like uh, putting out a fire. Yeah, <laughs> that's never really going. Forest out. fire. A forest There's always fire. a spot where <laughs> wildfire. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, we are also very, very grateful. So we accept uh, and can give tax receipts for charitable donations to, made to Our Lady of Mount Carmel Academy. Okay. Um, and that's easily done on our website with all the usual usual. Uh, I'll put means. the links for all that in the description. Area Much of this appreciated. Podcast. And yeah. we offer up our daily rosary for the good of all our benefactors and in gratitude for all those who contribute and make such a profound difference to allow, once again, Catholics from around the world to have a Catholic education and to help us in our great mission of forming Catholic men for the future of the church and for the salvation of our society. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you heard it here. Even if you just donate $20 a month or something like that, you're going to have a lot of priests and a lot of people praying for you every day. So there's a benefit as well for that. Um, Yeah, this place is very special, and I really thank you for doing this interview with me. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, please consider 
supporting this school first with your prayers, offer your masses, have priests offer masses for the success of this school, but also, you know, think about all those memberships you have. You ten dollars to Spotify, ten dollars to Netflix, whatever it is, whatever it is, you can sacrifice something. And you can find a way just to contribute even 5 or $10 a month. I will put the links in the description for this podcast, uh, both if you're listening to it on iTunes or Spotify or any of those audio apps and also on YouTube. And I, and I really encourage you to do so, especially, you know, it's very hard in our church today. People are worried about tithing in their diocese and where's the money going to go and all these kinds of things. And in a perfect world, we would make sure that all that money is going to go right to where we go to mass and things like that. And we should try to do that. But there are these appeals that the dioceses make and the money goes to strange places and so forth. So if you want to put your money somewhere where I can assure you, none of it's going to be wasted. There's not enough of it to waste. <laughs> and, and, and it can go to supporting a place that is really going to build vocations. You know, this country of ours has a glorious Catholic history. And this really is the only place for English speaking. I know there's a school in Quebec, but for a boarding school, you know, this is really the only place where they're keeping the flame of true uh, old school, traditional Catholic education alive. And this is where the priests are going to be formed. So ladies and gentlemen, please consider uh, doing that. Father, thank you so much for joining me today. I know I threw a lot of questions at you, but I think it was very good. Thank you very much, Kennedy. It's been a real pleasure and God bless you and God bless all our generous benefactors and all your viewers as well. Thank you. As always, ladies and gentlemen, let me know what you think in the comments. This has been the Kennedy Report. Until next time, God bless.